Super Talk Mississippi media production. Spring is in the air, and that means it's time to refresh your wardrobe with the season's hottest trends at the Black Sheep Boutique. Don't blend in this spring. Stand out with the Black Sheep Boutique with two locations to serve you in Tupelo or Saltillo or online at theblacksheepboutiquetupelo.com. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. This show was previously recorded. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, rocking into hour two of the program. Joining us now, Hank Burdine, board member with the Mississippi Levy Commission. Hank, how's it going today, sir? Well, we're doing pretty good up here in the Delta. Heard y'all got a little taste of what we get up here a good bit. Y'all had a deluge down there in Jackson yesterday. I'm mighty sorry it impacted a lot of folks down there. Yeah, it did. And it wasn't just yesterday. It's been going on for now, I guess, about a week solid, it seems. Really started moving into the area uh, late last Thursday and uh, more predicted, I think, 90% chance in central Mississippi today. Yeah, we're we're uh, starting to see flash flooding around the area, school closures, uh, roads closed, etc. So it's a big old problem. But we wanted to have you on today because it is our understanding that Senator's Wicker and Hyde-Smith and Congressman Thompson held hearings on uh, the pump situation and the flooding in the Delta, and uh, just wanted to check in with you and see what came of that and what we might expect. Yeah, if they did, uh, Senator Wicker and Congressman Thompson set up a meeting of elected officials uh, at the Corps of Engineers headquarters in Vicksburg, and uh, this was all set up, and the Council on Eco Environmental Quality, the presidential council that uh, they set up with Brenda Mallory. She is the CEQ chair of it. She came, and uh, Michael Regan, who is the head of the EPA administration, has been here before and seen everything. He didn't come, but he sent a, a representative, and Michael Connor, who is the uh, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works. That's big cheese, man. <laughs> he was here, and the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Martha Williams, she's head of that, but she was not here. She sent a representative, and the Department of Interior sent a representative down here. And uh, so we had a jam-up bunch of folks on this panel. Now, one thing happened when they all flew in and got off the airport, they were in the middle of, they'd never seen rain like that. So, we, you know, we're welcome to Mississippi. I mean, this can happen. So it we all convened, and I was invited to attend the meeting because of my elected official capacity with sure. the Mississippi Levy Board. Yeah. And after they all said their little things about it, and then Mr. Thompson got up and uh he, he uh, was the original one that threw it back into the EPA's lap, uh, saying that uh, they need to see if this is legal, the 
the uh, Trump administration, the EPA administration uh, project that had gotten to go ahead and was ready to go to work. And the EPA said, in essence, it's the same program we had that the Bush uh, administration vetoed in 2008. Yeah. So what, what uh, could you share with us, Hank, some of the comments and concerns heard from uh, citizens who were able to to uh, speak and, and address the group? Yes, let me, uh, if we got a second, yeah. the, Benny Thompson said that uh, we got to follow the law. He went on to say hmm. that we can still get the pump, but we got to do it within the confines of the legalities of, of the EPA and all like this. So I'm saying that Benny Thompson is still saying we can get the pump. Hmm. Okay. Senator Sidney Hyde, Senator Roger Wicker jumped in there. We need these pumps, the, the science, we need to follow the science on all this stuff. The Corps of Engineers says we can do this, and we're not hurting the environment. We've gotten a, a, a net plus gain out of all this stuff with the new project. Let's go for it. Hmm. And then Representative Cindy Hyde-Smith, I'm taking my hat off, and, and I'm going to do a hoo-hoop hooray on this. That lady, that senator lady we have up there has our backs big time. She she got right up into the uh, the EPA. She said, "What is it that is not following the law? If you can't tell me right now what it is, then I want as quick as you possibly can to get me from EPA what it is. I want to know specifics. I want to know what's happening. Why we can't get this thing done? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something. She is a war horse." And I was mighty proud to be in that room with her and uh, and hearing the the, the the adamancy that she has in this project. She understands it. So does Wicker. But Cindy Hyde-Smith knows what's happening. Okay. Well, we so after that meeting, the court never presented a compromised plan on the latest plan that uh, was vetoed by the present administration. There's a new plan out there that is being looked at, that this uh, Council on Environmental Quality is looking at, that will give you a higher elevation for the pumps to kick on at, which is what the environmental group's saying. We need more water. We need more water. But along with that higher elevation that gives more acres underwater, we've got a larger pump system set up that will take the water off of the affected cropland quicker and will get the cropland dried out. It'll take all the water off of the highways. It'll take all the water off of the 68, uh, 668 homes that went underwater. That, by the way, is 94% minority occupied. Mm-hmm. So this new scenario falls right into place with everything that they're asking for. Hmm. The environmental groups are asking for more water. Well, you're going to have more water. Uh, And that more water is still 200,000 acres of Delta National Forest and Panther Swamp. How is that good for that environment when you've got six to eight feet of water under all that? But it does allow the wildlife, the deer, the bear, everything else, a chance and an opportunity to get to higher ground. Right. It won't be the total decimation that we had in 2019. Hmm. So all of those points were brought up at the meeting in Vicksburg. 
Then we go to the meeting at the high school in Rolling Fork, and it was a lot of people there of all races and different areas, and uh, they got up and they went to talking. And I think that this panel that was there understands now this is an area that is it, 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 it's 600 and something thousand uh, acres. Yeah. That is a lot of land underwater with the houses. And those people got up and talked about what it was like for six months to have to take their 80-year-old grandmamas back and forth to different places when she couldn't go back to her houses. Hmm. What it did to the businesses, what it did to the farmers, what it did to businesses that supplies all those farmers and everything. And then we had supervisors get up. What it did to the miles and miles of not only the paved roads there that went underwater, but the gravel roads that still hadn't come back yet, that are still being impacted by that. So the panel, I think, understood firsthand what went on in 2019. Now, there's a gentleman named Ty Pinkins that came in with a, uh, he's been passing out. Uh, flyers saying that the pumps won't work. The Corps says the pump won't work, that it won't drain anything. Well, if he wanted everything drained, let's go back to the first plan that would be hmm. told. Let's drop to the elevation. Let's put much bigger pumps in there. You won't ever have a flooding problem down there. Hmm. But this is a compromise situation. And he's saying that there maybe there is money out there to help help these people that are impacted. Well, if there is, that's fine then let's tap into those streams of money to get a little help to these people that were impacted like that through FEMA or through whatever. Right. And But let's also go with the long-term solution, which is the only solution, and that is the pump system. And this new scenario that the Corps is working out, if they will get their head out of the sand and the mud and look at it, it meets all of their goals. It's just a matter of them sitting down and saying, okay, we've heard what's going on. Now let's see, let's look at this new thing and see if it'll work. And let's, let's go to, let's go to work. Let's pull some concrete. Hank, we got, we got about a minute left. What's the next step? And do you think we're going to get a next step? Got about a minute. The next step is this group goes back to Washington and they huddle up and they look at this new proposal by the Corps of Engineers. And hopefully they throw politics out of this dead gone thing. And they say, look, Let's do what yeah. needs to be done. Let's don't put a Band-Aid on it and send these folks $1,500 check, which won't do anything. Right. Let's go ahead and solve the problem, get these pumps going, and solve the problem for the for, from here on out for the future. Well, hopefully some true accounts from citizens uh, on the ground there will, will move the needle more than um, you know just our politicians have been able to do so. Maybe they can use that as ammunition to get something done. Hank, always a pleasure, sir. Appreciate you coming on the program and thanks for that great update. Let's stop the rain down there. Thank you, and let's do it some more. Yes, sir. Hank Burdine, board member of the Mississippi Levy Commission, has been our guest here on Middays talking about those pumps and the flooding in the Delta. Stay with us. We'll come right back in the Element Well Studios. This show. This show was previously recorded. Check it out. Let's do this. 
Center, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Raindrops keep falling on my head. But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red. Crying's not for me. Wow, is that ever appropriate bumper music there? (laughs) Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios. And uh, joining us now, John Sigmund, General Manager of the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District. John, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Well, we... uh, we just been keeping an eye on that Pearl River. I rode over it uh, a couple of days ago uh, there on Lakeland Drive and, and couldn't help but notice how dang high it was. Where do we stand right now? Right now, the uh, the lake is about as full as it's ever been. We've held back enough water that that now we have uh, have concerns about uh, about how full it is. We just this morning got it to turn to where it's not rising anymore. So that uh, that's a good sign, but we are releasing currently fifty five thousand cubic feet per second, and that will result in a river at the highway eighty gauge of thirty five feet. And the weather service makes these predictions. I don't, but that's they've got the best scientists and the best computers in the world working on it, and they're usually very accurate. So we hope that by re- increasing the flow right now, we won't have to increase it again through the through this event and that's going to keep water below the magic 35 5 36 where it starts going in houses oh okay all right so when is that expected to occur john that should happen within 24 hours of the uh, this time tomorrow okay should be at it this time tomorrow and and does that also uh those models uh consider the possibility of more rain they do account account for the forecast of the next 24 hours. And as you know, there could could be more rain after that. So another reason for us to begin uh, lowering the lake as fast as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, what about how this compares to prior situations? 79 and 83 come to mind. I think those were the highest, right? Those were the two highest of record, and it won't. this won't compare to them, uh, a 79 went to 43 feet, and the 83 went to 39 feet. Uh, this is shaping up to be the ninth biggest on record, but yet it doesn't matter what the record is if the water's getting in your house. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and most recently, uh, 2020. 2020 is more comparable to what we're facing now, and it'll be less than that, but it's going to be right there. And if you had water in your house or you had concerns about water in 2020, I would advise you to take your precautions now. Okay. Is there anything that your organization has done or can do, uh, say, since 2020 or in the last couple of years to to try to prevent uh, flooding as a result of the heavy rains? Uh, we have continued to uh, increase our efficiency of, of operation and modeling of the, of the reservoir. But by and large, it's still the same geometry that we had then. Uh, it literally depends on the duration, intensity, and location of the rainfall. Sure. Makes sense. And so uh, you said you mentioned 2020, and that's the one I uh, most recently remember. And and uh, I know that got a lot of the Jackson area, the low-lying areas in Jackson, and, and uh, even some of the areas 
especially around the reservoir, the backwater area there uh, between the dam and, uh, um, and, the, and the lake. Uh, is that, I guess, the same areas that are, again, vulnerable here? Yes, they are. Now, let's look back at 2020. When that uh, started, we had the lake way down. The lake was down to 296 okay. to help battle the giants of Venia, which, by the way, we beat. And so I had a couple of feet of storage to work with then that I don't have now. Okay. Gotcha. I, I understand. So you just got less you can hold, which means you got to pour more out, and that um, hits us downstream. Yeah, it does. And, and, and I talk to people. They call and have concerns, and I try to tell them, you know, you need to be prepared. You need to take make your plan, execute your plan, because the water will come. Yeah. All right. What about uh, further downriver? Uh, obviously, the, the Jackson Metro area is the one that, uh, I guess, since we live here, we think about the most. But the, the river, of course, continues on down South Mississippi, Southwest Mississippi. Yes, we have uh, concerns with Monticello, Columbia, uh, Bogalusa. All of those river cities have situations where uh, the reservoir eventually affects them. Not quite as much as they believe, but it does affect them. Uh, however, in this storm, a lot of the storm went south, and they were at flood stage before we began increasing discharges here. Ah, uh, uh, Okay, so this just exacerbates that. It just makes it worse. Yeah. yeah. What about uh, any interaction your organization, John, has with the National Weather Service? Are you trying to anticipate Oh, events yes. like this, yes. and how, how like how far out in advance did they give you any kind of heads up on what we're experiencing right now? It varies, but depending on the storm event, this one I got a day's advance notice. <laughs> oh, uh, gee, thanks. And we work with the weather service. Uh, in fact, during high flow periods like this, we have a conference call each morning with the weather service, U.S. Geological Survey, Corps of Engineers, MEMA. Often the city of Jackson's in on those calls. And we, we coordinate what we're going to do. And I'll make a proposal of what I think we need to do, and everybody gets a chance to say, oh, that's going to be an adverse effect, or we think that's the thing to do. In the end, the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District makes the decisions. Okay. Uh, and make the decisions as far as how much water to let out of the lake, into the river yes. specifically? You guys yes. control that, right? Yes. And. Uh, is there is there a board? Tell, tell us how it's organized, the uh, the district itself. The district is a state agency, and it is uh, embodied in a statute. Uh, we're body politic and corporate. You know, that yeah. means a lot to, to the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> but we have a board of 14 members appointed by the governor, the supervisors, and some of the state agencies. Okay. And, and so... Are, do you have meetings, John, to to discuss exactly how to regulate the water flow? And there, is there a vote on that, or how the, does that work? The board sets the broad policy. Okay. They leave it up to me to yeah. execute. Yeah. And I'm trained for that. I've got experience in that. Okay. And and they will pretty much go with my judgment. Now, if I if I mess up big time, you know, they'll find somebody yeah, I else. Understand. But uh, I advise the board every day of what we're going to do, and uh, so far they say we understand, go ahead. Uh, but they, there's no form of vote I on setting the gates. So it's it's sort of typical board governance where they, they maybe set the uh, the strategy, if you will, and, uh, and agree to that and then authorize you to take action that would support that strategy. That is correct. And uh, I, I oftentimes hear people, and you'll see it on Facebook this morning, uh, 
those people are not accountable. They're not elected. Well, it's it's a republic. We right. our, our our board members are appointed by officials who are elected by the people. Right. And so there is direct representation. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, so 14, you mentioned supervisors as well th- that are on the board. Well, the supervisors appoint a okay. member. Supervi- and so it, the supervisors from which counties? The five county member counties, Scott, Lee, Hines, Rankin, and Madison. And okay. they each appoint one board member, and that has to be uh, confirmed by, uh, by their board of supervisors. So they make that appointment. The governor appoints five directly. Okay. And then four are appointed by the state agencies like Wildlife, Futures, and Parks, Department okay. of Health, et cetera. They would have an interest in it, yeah. And we get great expertise by that. We get people who, sure. who are very well versed in wildlife management or who are very well versed in public health, and, and it Makes really sense. is great. Makes sense. So it sounds like uh, a diverse group uh, and a diverse brain trust, if you will, yeah. that are involved in the governance it here. Yes, it's a lot of experience on that board. A lot of gray hair. Some of us don't have any hair left. But <laughs> it's a it's a uh, experienced group of people. Yeah, but at the end of the day, uh, once that strategy is put in place, your job to act on that and um, and and to just run the whole deal in accordance with that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. So what'd you say? Fifty five thousand. 55,000 cubic feet per second. Now, per that's second. a lot of water. Yeah. That's a lot of water. Uh, on a good day, a bad, I mean, excuse me, a very big discharge at, say, Grenada Reservoir would be 5,000. Wow. This is 10 times that. And we're going to, could go higher. I don't, I don't want to. I hope we don't, but we could go higher. Well, is there, is there an average? What's typical for, for uh, um, Pearl River? Average normal days two or three thousand. Uh, wow, minimum so fifty five thousand. Minimum discharge is two hundred and forty seven, and sometimes we're at that for months. And typically, August is a minimum discharge situation yeah, unless right. a hurricane's pushing through. And this storm acted like a hurricane, but it was no hurricane. Right. In terms of the the rainfall, it certainly does. Uh, before we go, we got about a minute here. Is there anything you'd like to see in the way of infrastructure to just improve the entire district that, that uh, maybe the legislature needs to authorize or some other body? Oh, we've got we've got plenty of needs. We need money for dredging. We need money for public facilities like recreational facilities and yeah. things like that. Uh, the primary purpose of the reservoir is water supply for the city of Jackson. And that's one reason I can't empty the reservoir to hold back floods is i got to have water for the city of Jackson. I understand. So it's a balancing act constantly. It's a tightrope. <laughs> I get it. John, thanks so much for coming in. Very informative, sir. Thank you. Okay, thank you. John Sigmund, General Manager of Pearl River Valley Water Supply District, has been our, de- our guest on the middays. We'll step aside and we'll come right back. This this show was previously recorded. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one.
in the Element Well Studios. Appreciate the mayor of Greenville, Mississippi, coming on. See what happens for that on that uh, front. So, uh, lots of text rolling in here on the C Spire text line. Let's see, the Park Commission is already at a 300K deficit this year in Greenville because the commissioner signed a bunch of contracts with rappers for a festival without the council knowing. Hmm. Well, I got to tell you, uh, you know, it's complicated stuff, but I'd, it su- would be surprising to me that a single council member can bind a city. I I don't think so. I mean, a single council member should not have binding legal authority. Shouldn't. I mean, I can tell you, in, in the private sector, you better make sure whoever signs contracts has binding authority. And the contracts should have a legal statement close to the signature it needs to be someone who has that legal ability to enter into a contract on both sides. I've seen that tested before. It don't go well if whomever the signatories are, if there is one certainly party in, a, in an agreement, in a contract, that doesn't have binding authority. I'll tell you, in my company, it's about three people, and I'm one of them, and as the CEO, and honestly, we had it all automated. It was all it was totally electronic. We were an early adopter of digital signatures long time ago, before anybody ever heard of DocuSign. And, you know, it's not surprising, Rhino, at first, we had a number of customers that were um, leery of digital signature and insisted that, no, let's print them out and sign them and fax them back and forth and all that kind of stuff, including the state of Mississippi, where I always thought it was silly. We'd have four-part contracts or four um, four copies, should say, of contracts uh, in the state, and we literally would have somebody go down to the town to pick them up, bring them to me for two seconds to sign, and then bring them back for them to sign, and then bring back the copies. Oh, yeah. In big cities, there's entire services that do that. Yeah. Bike couriers and the like. Right. Well, they used to. Like, dude, why can't we do this electronically? I I never understood that. But nonetheless, back to this point, uh, he says the director of, uh, this is Pat Dale from the Delta, the director of the Park Commission's had them sign, and in Greenville, the Park Commission works on their own budget, but when they go over budget, guess who has to pay it? I mean, I still say, though, Pat, honestly, that, that is, that's a problem, I would say, in the structure of uh, the legal framework under which the or any city operates. I, you just got to be careful with binding authority there, and certainly some single member of a council shouldn't have the, I don't think, it's good business, the authority to bind a contract. Anyhow. I, so I, you know, I really don't know about um, relying on what Pat's telling us here about the deficit and so forth. It's just kind of crazy. Um, Gina Mendehall says Jackson can't hand out water bills. Wait till the trash stops running. Yeah, I, I hear you. And uh, the billing system, having worked with the city of Jackson from an IT perspective as a vendor. 
for 25 years. Um, and, and, you know, obviously abiding by their procurement policies and rules. And it does bring up an interesting thought that I had about this whole deal, honestly. And that is, just think about how to connect the dots here. This, I believe, is a very pointed example of what you've heard me describe on the program as the march to mediocrity. And here's what I mean by that. Public sector entities, and now, to a great extent, even private sector entities, their procurement processes are are not as I think many people perceive. Here's what I mean. To do business with most municipalities in this country, in some cases, states, but certainly at the municipal and county level, as a vendor, as a contractor to those levels of government, it's pretty it's been a pretty widespread and common practice to require minority vendor participation, what they call MBE, Minority Business Enterprise. Remember we had um, the contract compliance officer from the Jackson Municipal Airport Authority on, I think, last week, talking about the um, Aviation Industry Day, which was uh, really a business event to try to connect minority vendors with the three airports, Golden Triangle, Jackson Municipal, and uh, Gulfport-Biloxi. Is it Gulfport-Biloxi or Biloxi-Gulfport? I think it's Gulfport-Biloxi, if I'm not mistaken. So anyhow, you know what I'm talking about. The one on the coast that has... Gulfport-Biloxi International. Okay, had it right. Thank you. So uh, anyhow, and remember that she shared with us her, her function is to ensure contract compliance. And I can't remember the acronym, Rhino, remember, because I had to ask her. I wasn't sure what it meant. My experience, the acronym was always MBE, Minority Business Enterprise. Maybe it was like disadvantaged or something. like. You remember that? It seems to be one of the letters in it. But it's the same deal, nonetheless. So in general, though, procurement... And I know this to be the case in the city of Jackson, because I did a lot of business with the city of Jackson. You've got to have a certain percentage of your contract has got to include, um, it's got got to include vendors in that contract that are minority owned, okay, to qualify as a minority business enterprise and registered with the city as a minority business enterprise. And unless, I want to say uh, it's been a while, 20% of the value of the contract had to be allocated to an MBE. And that's very common. I've done business in New Orleans, in Memphis, in Birmingham, in Atlanta. Very common. Very common practice. Very common policy in procurement. So... I think the common perception of the taxpayer is, well, procurement of uh, using public money is done through some comprehensive, totally transparent and fair bid process, an RFP process, request for proposal, which is typically a lot more involved and 
uh, than just a simple bid. Bid is just, okay, we want to buy some of these, what's your price? RFP is provide us a proposal to, to perform certain work as described in the RFP, and usually those things can be quite extensive. I mean, we, I've done uh, many in my career where the RFP itself was uh, several two- or three-inch binders, and, of course, the response would be about triple that. You know, you'd have to have, to have a cart to bring in your response. And there's usually a scoring mechanism and a, and a scoring system that is typically published. Sometimes it's included in the RFP. Sometimes it's post-RFP. But the, the scoring is uh, it is subjective except for the financial aspect, which, of course, is objective. And then there's there are weights assigned to the various categories of scoring. The state of Mississippi conducts its RFP process consistent with these standards and has for years. It's quite fair. But in the case typically of municipalities, there is a, min, a minority business enterprise participation requirement. And you may have the lowest and best, not the lowest necessarily, but the lowest and best, meaning you meet the requirements, the specifications of what is being procured in accordance with the RFP, and you scored the best in terms of the technical value and the technical quality of your proposal, and, and you're meeting the specifications, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of qualitative scoring categories. And you may, and combine that with the weight of your financial price, and you win. But if you don't have sufficient minority participation, you lose. And in fact, contracts get awarded at a higher price, at a premium to the taxpayer, simply because a vendor, the winning vendor, included the required minority participation, maybe even exceeded it, and therefore got additional points in the scoring mechanism. So the taxpayers actually pay a premium to do business with vendors that are either minorities or include certain minority participation. It's not, let's buy the best value. That's not the goal at all. We'll continue this discussion as we go into a break here on uh, Middays, and we'll be right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Properly set all controls before recording. All systems go. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk, Mississippi. Kyle and Jackson. So we were just talking about this minority participation requirement, which is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. I think what's relatively new, however, is the rather sharp increase of private sector entities. All again, uh, going back to the George Floyd incident. After that, all sorts of large private companies adopted and, and published all sorts of policies where they're given 
incredible preferential treatment to minority-owned enterprises and, and pledged to, to increase the percentage of their total spend uh, with minority vendors. Whether they're the best vendor offering the best quality product service at the lowest price, in other words, the best value for the entity, irrelevant. In the case, so that's private company. They can do what the heck they want. Now, I can tell you, I've been on the losing end of that with some fortune companies where we lost deals. We had the clearly the best solution, the lowest cost, best value solution, and lost. And we're told, you're not a minority enterprise. Sorry, this money's going over here. In the public sector, it's different because whereas in the private sector, I could argue reasonably that 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 is an, an abdication of fiduciary responsibility when management at a private company is not looking out for the stockholders by by investing with, spending money with vendors who provide the best value to the company. In the case of the public sector, such as a municipality, well, it's the taxpayers on the hook. And I have personally been involved in a number of uh, fairly large procurements and lost simply because we either didn't, to their satisfaction, meet the minority participation requirement or that we were not a minority-owned business. Now, it gets gained, there's no doubt, where you'll get non-minority-owned businesses that will turn around and subcontract it, or actually vice versa, that this is a more common case. The minority-owned business, which is just a shell that has zero capabilities, I've seen this in my industry, in the IT industry, and they'll uh, respond and be the prime contractor, respond to the RP, be the prime contractor. They do zero work and turn around and subcontract it to a non-minority vendor who actually does the work. After taking their nice cut. Correct. And they get and, and by the way, it's not that it renders them uncompetitive because you've got these multiple layers of people getting compensated. No, in fact, again, they pay a premium. It's, and I, I have been, Rhino, I promise this, I'm telling the truth here, it, I, sure as I'm sitting here. I have been at what's called bid openings, could could be giant RFPs, right? And in some situations, um, the buyer, the owner, let's just call it a city, they'll have like a summary sheet they'll ask you to prepare to include in your, you know, four-inch thick RFP response, and you put the summary sheet on the top. So quickly, the the uh, those that are receiving the RFPs from the various vendors at the day and time you're to deliver it can get a quick summary. So they look at it, and the first thing they look at is the minority participation. They could care less about the quality of the solution, the cost of it, how much minority participation are you saying you got? That's all they care about. So I'm, I'm simply saying that Jackson, like so many other municipalities, has operated under such a procurement environment for decades. And when you do so, you're not getting the best value for the taxpayers. Is that saying that no minority entities can uh, properly serve? The city? No, it's not saying that. What I'm saying is 
when, again, what you are, as we say so many times, rather than who you are, is what rules the day and, uh, and the way money is spent, it's irresponsible. And it's a march to mediocrity. I remember participating, and I'm just sharing my little teeny tiny anecdotal world. I know there's a million other examples out there, but this constant uh, focus and obsession with what's the race and the gender and the other status, the the again the what, the physical attributes of those that are vending to the entity, when that becomes a greater focus, then we got to solve the problem here, <laughs> and we got to do it in a, in a financially responsible manner as a fiduciary for the taxpayers. Well, that gets kind of shoved off to the side. It's more important. It, it's almost soft reparations, folks, if you want to know the truth. just is. That's the way that stuff works, and... I've seen examples where we lost, vendor that won because of their minority participation, failed in the middle of the project. We were brought in to bail them out. Unbelievable. We'll step aside right here. We'll come back with more. We got Russ Latino. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well Studios on this hump day. We made it this far. I don't think I'm going anywhere uh, as far as remotes for a while. At least Looking not the rest the of the schedule. week. No, not the, not the rest of the week. They better let me know. I've been on the road, though, quite a bit. It's been fun. I like getting out um, and seeing the beautiful Magnolia State. And, you know, that drive up there to West Point, it's uh, with everything being four lane. It's actually pretty enjoyable. It's not bad at all. So anyhow, back in the Element Well Studios, Russ Latino, the president of Empower Mississippi. Russ, good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. It's been a little while. It has. It has. Uh, nothing's going on though, so we can just close it up now. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about. Uh, we're we're going. We had you here because we want to talk about this whole student loan situation. But the city of Jackson. I know you have got uh, some feelings on that, <laughs> needless to say. Um, uh, you being the uh, well-thought uh, policy uh, intellect that you are, always appreciate your insight. Uh, I've got some feelings on it as well, as you might sure, expect. Sure. But this you is, being the well-thought policy well, intellect that you that. are. I appreciate that. I don't know about that. But, you, you know, it, uh, it's just a common sense sort of deal. We've been talking a lot about uh, how do we get here. And certainly, we we need to do uh, some introspect analysis of that. No doubt about it. Mainly so it doesn't happen again. I mean, a, we can't fix what happened in the past. 
how we get here. But the biggest thing is, where do we go from here? And uh, I'm hearing everything from, let's get the federal government uh, to just write a check, bail the city out. Uh, there are some rumors that the state may exercise its authority, and I must admit, I'm not familiar with what sort of authority, maybe you can help us with that, the state would have in terms of so-called taking over the city. There's rumors of that, as you know, swirling around. Um, and, and then, so you got that going on. And then there's also ideas that you were just sharing with before we uh, came on the air about, well, let's go ahead and get the ARPA money yeah. that was showered upon us. Let's get that uh in the works and get something going. Well, Your thoughts? Yeah, a few thoughts. I mean, one, I think we've got to have a strong Jackson to have a strong Mississippi. It's our capital Agreed. city. Uh, we need to to all be a part of figuring out how to fix the problems that are there, and they're substantial problems. I think we've got to stop ignoring the fact that there are problems there for fear of, of uh, accusations uh, because of some of the delicacies associated with um, the, the city and the way that people perceive the city. I think that we've got to look at it and say, okay, there's this massive problem with water. It's unsafe for the people to drink. It's unsafe for people to live their lives. It's unsafe for businesses to operate and make living. Um, and so we got to do something about it. There are, to me, the the importance of understanding the problem isn't just so that we don't repeat it. It's designing a solution requires us to understand how we got there. Oh, sure. And so I would say this is not something that is a byproduct of flooding. Flooding is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is a decades-in-the-making problem with deferred maintenance on a system. It's a decades-in-the-making problem with failure to actually bill for water, which means there's insufficient funds to maintain the system. Agree. And it's a failure in terms of staffing. Uh, OB Curtis is not that old of a facility. It really isn't. I think it's 20, 20 years old, give right, or take. Right. Um, we just have inadequate staffing. In fact, the EPA has said that we have inadequate qualified staffing to, to run the thing. So all of those are, are real sort of long-term problems that have to be addressed if you want to fix it. I'd look at it, though, and say this, that there are numbers floating around that people have thrown out about what it would take to fix it. Nobody knows because the analysis that's required to really know what is wrong with the system has not been done. And it costs money and it, to and do it, the analysis. And it does cost money. Um, but I also know that the city of Jackson got $42 million in American Rescue Plan Act money, um, which they are allowed to use for water infrastructure. Right. I know that Hines County got $45 million uh, directly, uh, their portion. And you look at that, and you're talking about $87 million that could immediately be applied to the problem. And then you realize the state opened up their ARPA money to matching. So if Jackson and Hines County decide to put all $87 million up into the state's matching program, we're talking about $174 million in quick access that can be used to fix OB Curtis, to fix the meter system, because after all of this, we still don't have... Uh, a system that really works for billing in Jackson. Um, you look at all of that and you go, that's a real start. And so even if you accept some of the ridiculous numbers that are floating around, it would cost $2 billion to replace the entire system sort of thing. you got to realize that it's better to spend $174 million now to get water back to people immediately, take one bite at the elephant, and then we can talk about what a long-term plan looks like to finish eating the elephant. Yeah, I mean, we at least got to get back to a point where we have functioning flow of potable water. I mean, that's that's the problem we have right now. And you can't have economic activity without that. 
Yep. You can't produce revenue without economic activity. So it's a huge old catch-22, but we got to at least get back to that. Well, it becomes a death spiral, right? Um, due to your point, if business goes out of Jackson, then employment goes out of Jackson, um, and your your tax base gets smaller and smaller, so your ability to actually address these things gets harder and harder. I, I do think at some level it's worth considering the idea that one, some of the problems that Jackson's facing are not wholly Jackson in the sense that geographically the reservoir and the Pearl River contribute to some of the issues that Agree. they deal with. Agree. And those are, you know, those come through communities that are not Jackson. Um, so in a, in a degree, it is a regional question. Um, and then the, the system itself is not limited to Jackson proper, right? Um, certainly there are services that are offered as far north as Ridgeland. Um, with sewage, um, and there's water service that's offered all the way down to Byram. Right. So you look at that and go, well, perhaps the right approach to this is something similar to what Haley Barber did post-Katrina with a regional utility district that allows people who have a stake in the game in the area to have a voice in how resources get spent to fix the problem, recognizing that the impact of the problem extends beyond Jackson proper. Yep. yep. Yeah, to- totally agree. Uh, and, and also... Uh, also totally accept and appreciate your assessment that we can we can't just write the city off within the state it it uh we are all affected positively and negatively by the status uh, of the city of the capital city 100%. Um, we need to be committed to a strong Jackson. That's not a a white versus black thing. Right. It's not a Republican versus Democrat thing. The state needs a strong capital city. Right. Um, and the reality is, you know, a lot of people want to put these things in terms of, of sort of polarizing concepts. You're in team Republican or team Democrat. This is somehow a racial question. It's none of those things. There are white people who are living in Jackson that are being affected. There are black people who are living in Jackson that are being affected. And in until we stop deflecting from our faults by pointing fingers at other people, we're not going to fix the problems that are ultimately in the interest of the people that we're supposed to be serving. And I think, you know, I think this has got to be a state and local solution where we come together, figure out the extent of the problem, the cost of fixing it, a timeline, and who's going to execute it, and then put the resources to bear to fix the problem. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, however, uh, from an accountability perspective, I think it's fair to say that there is a low level of confidence that uh, this large amount of money, you, you, you pointed out, we could get to $175 million pretty rapidly, but to just transfer that to the current administration and, and it, for, for it to be overseen by them, I think is problematic for most people. I think you're looking at it from the perspective of if you're using state money, which includes state taxpayer money from places that are not Jackson, right. then state leaders owe it to somebody in Tishomingo County totally agree. to be able to say, hey, look, we're going to use some of your resources to invest in the capital city, um, but we're going to make sure that it gets used responsibly. Um, and And you look at the context of we're in the middle of litigation right now where the mayor of Jackson tried to veto the veto of his own city council, which is an absurd concept, (laughs) um, to hire his own garbage crew. So what you can't possibly do is open yourself up to the scenario where there's a Richard's Water Service suddenly doing things, right? 
There, there's got to be an actionable plan that the state can say, we're willing to invest in that plan. It can't just be a demand for revenue. I agree with you, and, I, and I'll say again, I, I still think a lot of these problems are rooted in the uh, deeply flawed and corrupt procurement process we have in the state. I just do. And that's been going on for a long time. we got Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi, We'll continue this discussion, and then we're going to start talking about this whole student loan situation like we don't have enough on our plate here. We're coming right back. We're in the Element Well Studios. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping into this segment here on Middays, we are back in the Element Well Studios. Our guest is Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi. So, Russ, on the ceasefire text line, you were talking about the uh, the money that could be made available in fairly short order, which includes some matching funds from the state in accordance to, to the state program to do so. And uh, so the question is, is this discussion about giving all of the ARPA and matching monies to one city's broken system without regard of others? No, no we're not no, suggesting that. I mean, that. Uh, my recollection is what $1.8 billion was right. the state kitty. So, to the state, right. So, so we'd be talking about $87 million of that $1.8 billion. Right. Um, that would be applied to, to one city. To then the county. To, to the Jackson, well, Jackson and Hines County. And then, again, like I said, there are elements of that water and sewage system that affect even up into Madison County. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but it's also, if you look at it in terms of population, um, you know, it's our largest population center as well. No doubt. So it would it would not be an unreasonable investment of the resources given the dire need, given the size of the population, the percentage of the overall sort of pot that we're talking about. I think what you need to ensure is that there's an actual plan to do something with it that actually benefits the people of Jackson. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So, And I can tell you, uh, folks, that uh, every state, uh, excuse me, every city leader that I have interviewed uh, since the ARPA was uh, enacted, a number, of course, at the Mississippi Municipal League Conference, but several others, of course, over the last year, I've always asked them, do you have your plan? Have you submitted your plan to the state for your matching piece? Because if you remember Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, that was like the first thing out of his mouth when that money came down, is you cities, we're going to do this matching thing, go get your plans together and make yeah. sure that you can participate here. Well, so. tomorrow, tomorrow is the, uh, my understanding, the opening of the application process. That's right. That. That's so, right. 
So literally, if you think about this in terms of timing, if Jackson has a plan, if they've been preparing for this, knowing that there's been a problem for years and the EPA has been entering consent orders and everything else for years, if they know how to fix it and the money has been the problem, they can put a plan on someone's desk tomorrow to start getting matching funds. Totally agree. I I just believe it needs to be done uh, with proper oversight that uh, is independent of the city. And, so. and look, if they don't have a plan, then they need to uh, to exercise the humility of saying we need help figuring out how to fix this. I totally thing. agree. Totally agree. And uh, the the mayor did indicate yesterday that he is uh, he is grateful for uh, the assistance. He welcomes the state's help. So we'll see where that goes. That's what he said. "Quote: We are grateful for the assistance." Unquote. So hopefully something will happen because. Uh, and this also, unfortunately, as you know, Russ, it reflects on the state across the country, the perception out there. I have actually received some calls from, from friends outside of Mississippi. You guys okay? You have water? Yeah. I understand, because you know they, it's, they don't know where the boundaries are and whose system's serving who, and it's making national news. It's not... Uh, the good kind of news you want for the state of Mississippi. So, And then you've got how this affects economic development as well when you have these kinds of things going on. No water, no power, no economic development projects. So. Which, which is why it's a bigger-than-Jackson problem, right? Agree. Um, there's a lot of human suffering going on in Jackson right now, but if you want to talk about why somebody in Biloxi should care about this, it's because the impact on the state's economy – is pretty substantial. No doubt about it. No, absolutely no b- doubt about it. All right. Uh, student loans. I know you've written a piece on that as well. Sure. You've got uh, some uh, some uh, some very deep feelings, and, and I do as well, but we kind of knew this was coming. I felt like it was, and, and you know, I think the, the uh, impetus was that the, uh, the moratorium on the, the pause on repayment was scheduled uh, to expire today. As a matter of fact, and I think that they, the Democrats effectively pushed the president into, okay, well, you don't want that to happen on your watch in advance of midterms, and everybody's got to resume payment of their student loans. Why don't you just go ahead and wipe out some of this debt? And by the way, extend the moratorium out till after the midterms as well. Yeah, um, you know, there there are multiple layers to this thing. The first thing I would say is that there are serious questions about the constitutionality of the act itself. Uh, it will end up being challenged in court, and I suspect it will end up being getting heard by the Supreme Court at some stage, uh, whether or not the president can just waive uh, debt uh, through executive order is questionable. Um, so there's that. I, I think there's the element of this that is potentially inflationary, even though it might feel nice if you're a beneficiary. Uh, Jason Furman, who was uh, President Obama's senior economic advisor, has come out and said, this is actually really bad policy the way this was designed. It's going to contribute to the inflationary environment that we're in. Yep. Um, so there's the, the sort of larger macro effect that arguably is negative. You know, I, I think a lot of conservatives will look at it and just say, as a matter of principle, you agreed to, to pay back a debt for a service that was being given. You need to pay your debt. Um, I look at it uh, uh, with a little bit more nuance than than that in this sense. I I do think that people should exercise personal responsibility. But I think the entire system is broken. I think the entire system of financing college, the import that we put on college for everyone, 
is broken, and part of that is because student loans are back federally. So you know this, that if you want to go buy a car right now, you'd go and you'd say, here's my income level, here are my assets, and then the bank's going to make a decision on whether or not they're going to give you money to buy that car. So they're actually analyzing the risk associated with giving you the money. Student loans don't have that, and it's because the federal government backs them. That's right. So there's no risk profile created. There's no cost-benefit analysis considered. There's no consideration of ability to repay or what default might look like. Those are all things that normally would be associated with lending practices. So if you're a college, the great thing about that is you don't it doesn't matter whether or not you're providing valuable education to someone such that they can get out and be more marketable than when they got there it doesn't matter if a student who's taking underwater basket weaving or something you know goofy sure. yep. um is going to be more productive once they get out because if they can't pay it back the federal government's going to take care of it yep. um and so there's no incentive on the part of the college to make sure that the scope of education is such that if all this money is being taken out in loans by students, that at the end of the day, that value is added back in their ability to go out and make a higher salary. Sure. So absent that, we've got a system where there's moral hazard, both on the part of the student who just sees free money and on the part of the college that is less concerned about the actual outcome of a kid coming out of college. Um, to me, that's a recipe for disaster. And candidly, just forgiving student loans doesn't fix it at all. Right. Um, you know, in fact, all it does is make it more likely uh, that that system continues where there's not a direct connection between the money being taken out of loans and the value that is added to the student who takes out that money in loans. Yeah. Uh, a, a great analysis. Appreciate that, Russ. So, you know, a couple of things I'll, I'll make a point of is that a lot of people, rightfully so, are angered because this is a targeted group. This is a targeted group. This only benefits directly those who actually presently have student loans. That's who it benefits. And, of course, only if their income is below the $125,000 threshold or two fifty dollars for a household. So those who don't have student loans, those who paid off their student loans. Those who consolidated their student loans. I got you. I hear you. I understand. Yeah. So it's all that uh, means that you're excluded from the group of beneficiaries. And so it is rightfully perceived as unfair, and those that are not benefiting feel like, well, I'm paying for a benefit you're getting. I get all that. But I'll just point this out. The government's not going to send those who are feel like they're absorbing the cost of, of uh, others they're not going to send you a bill for it. Um, they're not going to raise your taxes for it. How it manifests, if at all, would be through the inflationary impact. Sure. But on the other hand, why don't we equally get incensed at the um, at the $30 trillion of debt we have on the books, uh, over a third of which came about in the last three years, Sure. which is the reason we got 85 point. Uh, a percent uh, inflation right now. So it, this is 1% of that. I'm not saying it's nothing, but it depends on whose math you look at, but somewhere between 1% and 2%. So so where I would not even disagree with you, but just add some, some color commentary is okay. you're right in the sense that current taxpayers aren't suddenly going to pay back Right, there's not going to be a bill sent to Gerard saying, "Hey, Russ got a ten thousand dollar check. Will you contribute a dollar fifty? Right. But I do think that you're in a scenario where you're making the economy 
considerably weaker over time. Not You're creating moral hazard. And it's future taxpayers that are on the line for this. It's not people right now. It's 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 a deferred cost on the future taxpayers Agree. because of the thirty trillion in debt. Agree. But I'll I'll uh, I'll add this nuance to that. It's really not taxpayers. It's all consumers. Sure. The, the, this brunt that we'll have to bear, financial burden we'll have to bear. It's not taxpayers. It's everybody. Not just taxpayers. Yeah. It's not like because hell we know now half the tax half the households didn't pay any taxes. You hang around, we yeah, talk some more. We got Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi in the Element Well Studios. We'll be right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. Don't forget, coming up at 12.05, Sam Creekmore represents District 14. That's Union County, Mississippi. He's a good dude. He very much is, and he's going to be talking about International Overdose Awareness Day and some state legislation that he's involved in dealing with drug education, drug courts in the state, et cetera. And I know Empower has some involvement in that as well. Jeremy in Caledonia on the ceasefire text line says, I have two daughters that could benefit from the loan payoff, but I am not for it. I'm old school. You pay for what you owe. Appreciate that, Jerry. Uh, Excuse me, Jeremy. And I I think a lot of people do feel that way. It's been uh, rather interesting, Russ, is one way to describe it, to uh, consume the reaction across the country. Uh, Very much split, seems to me, down the middle, pro and uh, against student loan forgiveness. Some that are benefiting are against it. Some that are not are against it. Some that are benefiting are not only for it, they're screaming for more. Yeah. Now, I've, I've done some uh, – there's a whole bunch of statistics. I know you've obviously consumed them as well that are published by various organizations, and I try to cross-check them just to make sure they're, they're accurate and check their sources. But – uh, some of the interesting statistics about who actually has the debt. Of course, the higher the degree or the longer you stay in college, the more, the more debt you have. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty common uh, sense uh, conclusion there. But I got to tell you, and I, I hesitate to even say this, there's a side of me that believes this has also got some racial undertones to it as well. And the NAACP came out and blasted this plan, by the way. Said, does not do enough for black people. Because black women, as a, as a demographic, are uh, their households have, the percentage of their households have more debt than any others. They are more likely to go into student debt enter into student debt to fund their education than any other demographic. Uh, And, of course, the White House says 95% of those who will benefit have incomes below 75 grand. Um, And there's all kinds of statistics on ratios of of, uh, debt to income. 
Sure. Student debt to income, not surprisingly, unfortunately, Mississippi has the highest. Well, and look, though, even if you're talking about under 75 grand, people with college degrees statistically make more money than people without college degrees. Yeah. So you are talking about a scenario where you're taking the top half of the country and giving them a benefit, even if you're cutting out the very top uh, from being eligible. You know, I think all of this, though, misses the point at some level. I I see the debate. There's legitimate points to be made on both sides of it. I'm looking at it going, if you don't address what actually caused the student loan debt to climb to $1.8 trillion or whatever it is, um, then you're not actually doing anything but giving a temporary Band-Aid. You know, it might feel nice in the moment, but you've not fixed the problem. What actually has made college education so expensive? And I believe what has made college education so expensive is free money unchecked from any potential marketability gains that come along with taking out that loan to get the education. Right. And so it allows colleges to uh, to spend an awful lot of money on climbing walls and lazy rivers and all sorts of nice amenities to attract students in, and the student almost becomes a mark. Yep. It's like, we know that you can get money, so how do we make this super attractive? And by making it super attractive, we're going to make it super expensive. Yep. Right? So look at the inflation numbers on college. I mean, we've been talking about inflation across consumer spending for the last 18 months. Yep. It it pales into comparison to half a century of college tuition increases. We're talking 5x, the, the standard inflation rate, over that same time period. And it's because we've made access to capital so easy with no consequence or no consideration of the actual outcomes. Are we making that student better off when they emerge from college? Are they able to more easily take care of their families when they emerge from college? And if we're Letting somebody take out $200,000 in student loans for a job that will yield a $30,000 a year income, that seems like a broken system to me. No doubt about it. I mean, it seems fundamentally like a broken system. And I hold students responsible for signing that paper. I do. Even at 18, I think there's some personal responsibility associated with that. But we've got to be willing to look at it and say other people have skin in this game and are profiting from what is a broken system. Totally agree. Uh, absolutely agree. Um, uh, just imagine <laughs> if if I were in the private sector uh, and I was selling a, a product or service that the, the government was essentially uh, backing up the payment for, uh, I could probably sell a whole lot more of it. And that's really sure. what this is. And you could do it without any traditional free market uh, measures to balance and it out. And why do you need to control cost? Right. You, you don't. There's no, there's no incentive to do so. No right. motivation to do so. And so that's a real problem that gets paid off later by some guy who's going, I went two hundred grand into debt for a thirty grand a year job. No doubt and about I, it. Look, I had friends when I was at Tulane that did that. Tulane had a school of social work. It was one of the better schools of social work. They got out and became social workers. That is a noble profession. No doubt. But if you're sitting on 200 k in debt, it's difficult. They never get out. Never get out. Yeah, you never get out. And so a couple of other um, reforms that were included in uh, this president's plan that I found interesting, I was talking to Rhino about before we came on the air, when you look at these these various income-based repayment mechanisms that are available. So before he signed off on this order, 
the uh, income-based repayment process, the structure, was uh, limited. Your payments were, were limited to 10% of what's d- defined as your discretionary income. Well, that's been half to 5%. When payments resume, if they ever resume. The other thing is, after paying for 20 years the rem- at that level, the remaining debt forgiven. That's been in place for a while. That has now been half to 10 years. So the amount you're going to pay is going to be cut, and then the length you're going to pay is going to be t- cut for those that will continue to pay on their student debt. So that was a kind of a major change. That's why Penn Wharton came out and said, oh, this is more like a trillion-dollar example when you start figuring in the cost of money over that period of yeah. time with all, all those adjustments. Honestly, until I started digging into this income-based repayment structure, I wasn't aware of that, that that's how it worked, and that you had this automatic forgiveness after 20 years of paying. But there's going to be a lot of, pe- a lot of people that are going to have zero payments when payments resume, zero cost, zero dollar monthly payments when they resume, because they also change the way discretionary income is computed. So, so there are two thoughts that I've got on how you could potentially fix this. Um, one is to allow the debt to be dischargeable in bankruptcy. Which would certainly give some uh, some interest on the part of the government or lenders uh, to run better assessments on the front end. Yep. Um, the other thought process is uh, to essentially create a a larger segment that the college is responsible for in the in the event of a default. Yeah. Um, which would create some incentive for a college to say, "Hey, we're not going to keep offering programs that aren't actually marketable programs." The final thing is to say the federal government shouldn't be backing student loans, or it should be limited in how it backs student loans. Well, doesn't this just bring up the fundamental question, though, Russ, that what is the role of the federal government? I mean, this really is a question. I mean, it really is, because we have $31 trillion in debt that I would argue to a great extent is because we sort of went outside of our swim lane of of the constitutional function of government, and we spent a bunch of money for stuff we shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, my perspective is Article 1, Section 8 is the the functional role of of the federal government, but that hasn't been the case for a very long time. I I will say this, though, because you made this point earlier, and I think it's important. Yes, we're $30 trillion in debt, and what does that even mean at this point? Yeah. Um, but I, I sort of, whenever people say, hey, we're already $30 trillion in debt, so why not another trillion? I look at that and say, well, would you say if you had been cut seven times by a knife, I've been cut seven times, so cut me an eighth and ninth? <laughs> you know, like, or, or you punch me four times so you, you can punch me a fifth? What's the big deal? Yeah. I, at some point... You have to make measure to stop the bleeding. I think people believe that the music will always continue in the United States. But if we don't at some point restore fiscal sanity, the music will stop and we will be left without a chair to sit in. Yeah, And it, it just strikes me that we have had so much. We've been a country with so great of a lifestyle, so high of incomes, so great a quality of life that we've become accustomed to it, and we don't realize that, you know, if we lose reserve currency status in the world as an example, suddenly a lot of what we are living at goes down really, really quickly in terms of quality of life. We'll all get hurt, no doubt about it. So, yeah. Um, anyhow, you want to come back for now? i got another thought I want to share with you, if you can stay yeah, around. Yeah, sure. yeah, we got Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi. It's just uh, your, your great... 
uh, discussion about uh, finding the root cause, whether it's water or education. Sure. Let's talk about that when we come back. Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Properly set all controls before recording. All systems go. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Kyle and Jackson. So we were just talking about this minority participation requirement, which is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. I think what's relatively new, however, is the rather sharp increase of private sector entities. All again, uh, going back to the George Floyd incident. After that, all sorts of large private companies adopted and and published all sorts of policies where they're given incredible preferential treatment to minority-owned enterprises and and pledged to to increase the percentage of their total spend uh, with minority vendors. Whether they're the best vendor offering the best quality product service at the lowest price, in other words, the best value for the entity, irrelevant. In the case, so that's private company. They can do what the heck they want. Now, I can tell you, I've been on the losing end of that with some fortune companies where we lost deals. We had the clearly the best solution, the lowest cost, best value solution, and lost. And we're told, you're not a minority enterprise. Sorry. This money's going over here. In the public sector, it's different because... Whereas in the private sector, I could argue reasonably that 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 is an, an abdication of fiduciary responsibility when management at a private company is not looking out for the stockholders by by investing with, spending money with vendors who provide the best value to the company. In the case of the public sector, such as a municipality, well, it's the taxpayers on the hook. And I have personally been involved in a number of uh, fairly large procurements and lost simply because we either didn't, to their satisfaction, meet the minority participation requirement or that we were not a minority-owned business. Now, it gets gained, there's no doubt, where you'll get non-minority-owned businesses that will turn around and subcontract it, or actually vice versa. This is a more common case. The minority-owned business, which is just a shell that has zero capabilities, I've seen this in my industry, in the IT industry, and they'll uh, respond and be the prime contractor, respond to the RP, be the prime contractor. They do zero work and turn around and subcontract it to a non-minority vendor who actually does the work. 
after taking their nice cut. Correct. And they get and and by the way, it's not that it renders them uncompetitive because you've got these multiple layers of people getting compensated. No, in fact, again, they pay a premium. It's and I I have been Rhino. I promise this. Is, I'm telling the truth here. I'm, it, I, sure as I'm sitting here, I have been at what's called bid openings. Could could be giant RFPs, right? And in some situations, uh, the buyer, the owner, let's just call it a city, they'll have like a summary sheet they'll ask you to prepare to include in your, you know, four-inch thick RFP response. And you put the summary sheet on the top. So quickly, the, the uh, those that are receiving the RFPs from the various vendors at the day and time you're to deliver it can get a quick summary. So they look at it. And the first thing they look at is the minority participation. They could care less about the quality of the solution, the cost of it. How much minority participation are you saying you got? That's all they care about. So I'm, I'm simply saying that Jackson, like so many other municipalities, is operated under such a procurement environment for decades. And when you do so, you're not getting the best value for the taxpayers. Is that saying that no minority entities can uh, properly serve the city? No, it's not saying that. What I'm saying is when, again, what you are, as we say so many times, rather than who you are, is what rules the day and, uh, and the way money is spent, it's irresponsible. And it's a march to mediocrity. I remember participating, and I'm just sharing my little teeny tiny anecdotal world. I know there's a million other examples out there. But this constant uh, focus and obsession with what's the race and the gender and the other status, the, the again, the what, the physical attributes of those that are vending to the entity, when that becomes a greater focus, then we got to solve the problem here, <laughs> and we got to do it in a in a financially responsible manner, as a fiduciary for the taxpayers. Well, that gets kind of shoved off to the side. It's more important. It, it's almost soft reparations, folks. If you want to know the truth, just is. That's the way that stuff works, and. I've seen examples where we lost, vendor that won because of their minority participation, failed in the middle of the project. We were brought in to bail them out. Unbelievable. We'll step aside right here. We'll come back with more. We got Russ Latino. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back. 
in the LMI Well Studios, the 10-year Treasury sitting at 3.85% up nine basis points today, and that is pressuring stocks. It will also put a hurting on your credit card rates, your mortgage rates, your auto rates, etc. They are all generally tied to the uh, the 10-year uh, note. So we'll see uh, where all that goes. But, it's you know, it's just so volatile, as Rhino says. It's the <clears throat> kangaroo hopping all over the place. There's really no clarity whatsoever. All I know is that we got a government that doesn't seem to be interested in enacting any policy that would promote supply, such as making the Trump tax cuts permanent or cutting the red tape from the regulatory monstrosity, telling the fossil fuels industry, have at it, we're going to get off your back. That's the first thing they ought to do, honestly. But there's no interest in that whatsoever. And stripping all this climate change and equity narrative out of the uh, from being the central theme in policy making, it does seem like it is the central theme. It is the heart. And early on, when Joe Biden was elected, he made it clear through a directive that all agencies will consider climate change and equity in all of their policy making activity. That's he made that clear day one, and certainly they have been busy doing that, and we're paying the price for it. There's a price to be paid for that. I just uh, ordered a new keyboard for my home computer. There's a particular kind of keyboard that I that I like. And uh, the one I have is acting up a little bit. And so I just checked on the status with the, the maker, the supplier of that keyboard, and while we were off the air there, can't get components. Same old story, right? Struggling to get certain components to make the keyboard itself. Said, if you want to cancel, we understand. And they don't have a date. Can't, can't provide a, a shipping date at this point. Because a lot of the components that we use in manufacturing in America are made in China. And Scuttlebutt is coming out of China that... In the last month alone, they've had 250 million COVID cases. Yeah. They are relaxing some of the restrictions, but I don't think it's helping. And 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 why are they having – so the question is, why are they having such a surge? It's because they locked everybody down, and they never really spread it to achieve any sort of so-called herd immunity. So many of these people, it's the first time they've been infected – I submit that a lot of us that have been infected have probably been exposed to it since then, but didn't have a reinfection because we had some degree of immunity. Now, it's not everybody. Everybody's body's different, responds differently. But they didn't. You know, they insisted on locking the whole dang place down, this zero-COVID policy. And now they're relaxing that somewhat because it was taking its toll on their economy. And in doing so, 
the thing spreading like crazy. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible number. What'd you say? Two hundred and fifty million. Two hundred and fifty million in the last month alone. So that's a hundred million less than a hundred million less than the total population of this country. That's incredible to think about. That many people. They don't have the health care resources to deal with that. And I've seen, you've probably seen some of the video of it. It's it's heartbreaking. People are sick, can't do anything about it. Dumb. But yet they're selling to their population that the approach taken here, which was, I think, more restrictive in retrospect than it should and could have been. Well, China has proven in the last two-plus years that they're really good at control. They're not very good at actual governance. Right. That's exactly right. And they rely on keeping their population in the dark to control them. You, They only see, or they at least attempt to only allow them to see information they want them to see. You don't need to see what happens over there in America. You don't need to see the crowds at the World Cup where there's right. 30,000, 40,000 crammed into a stadium without wearing masks. Right. And no outbreak, right, after that. I haven't heard anything. Yeah, I agree. Mm. It's really incredible, and, and they still are able to get away with it. By the way, Chuck Schumer, I was talking about him and how he... He's been blasting, of course, corporations. They make too much money, and we got to cut them down to size and and just tax the ever-loving breath out of them and somewhat celebratory that so many in our society that have significant investment holdings have seen the value of those holdings plummet rather dramatically over the past year. He's seeing that as a silver lining. It's a good, it's a good thing. Because it reduces the so-called wealth gap. With respect to stock buybacks, you remember we discussed this when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. There is a provision in it that will tax companies uh, of a certain size. I believe it's a 1% tax, excise tax on stock buybacks. And all a stock buyback is is when a public company uses cash on its balance sheet to buy its own stock. And in, and in doing so, it props up the value of the stock, just less in the float, less available for the public to buy, and that drives the price up. It's, it's a financial strategy that's been used for decades by public companies. Schumer says, quote, I hate stock buybacks. I think they are one of the most self-serving things that corporate America does. As long as people like him hold the opinion that the purpose of corporations is not to deliver goods and services that the market consumes, and in exchange for that, they produce a profit. No, that's not what he thinks their purpose is. Their purpose is just to give money away, and to operate without a profit. And just dole all that out to the community. Combination of their workers and others 
without producing a profit. It's not to maximize profits, just like this Fairfax school. Their, her idea, this principle was, no, we got to level the playing field. Nobody here gets any rewards. All equal. All just indiscernible blobs sitting on a shelf that they'll mold into whatever they want. I mean, that really is the leftist idea. But And it doesn't stop there. I, I couldn't find the uh, the letter that was sent to parents, so I can't give you the school where it was, but I did read a letter that was sent home to parents of, I believe, middle school age, like fourth to eighth grade students, Yeah, where every student was being assigned a final grade based on the average of the class. I saw that. Now, where did where was that happening? I couldn't find I where I saved too. it to, to double-check, but I remember it was every student was receiving the average grade, and the average grade was 83%. I, I caught that same report. I'm uh, sorry that I didn't save that so that we could share the details of it, but I saw the exact same. So you see, once again, where it's going, and that idea, I guarantee, is going to gain traction going to gain traction in this country. Everybody's the same. That's their idea of equity. And it doesn't apply just to grades in a classroom. That's the way they want all society to function. That's China, essentially. It's North Korea. That's the way it functions. Exactly like that. Corporations don't exist to just produce anything but goods and services to serve society, to provide value to society. And in exchange for that value, people part with their money. They make those decisions. Government doesn't figure out, is not responsible, is not authorized to, is not commissioned to tell these companies how to operate. That just whew, grinds my gears. Middays is stepping aside for a break. We're in the Element Well Studios today, coming right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. On Super Talk Mississippi. Some people call me the Space Cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the Gangster of Love. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak of the pompous of love. The great Steve Miller. Middays back with you in the Element Well Studios. Just saw that uh, on the Business Channel here that Southwest announces more cancellations. Not out of the woods yet. Yeah, I saw reporting where they may be having to do a complete reset and shutdown of their systems. Similar to what I believe it was Spirit Airlines had to do yeah. back in, wasn't August of this year. I think it was August of last year. Sounds but, right. Yeah. Not good if you were trying to get home via Southwest. Nope. Mm-mm-mm. 
I can only pray for the citizens who elected the circular firing squad in Washington. It goes far beyond, bless their hearts, says J.D. in Eudora. Is the water out at the Capitol? Session is about to begin. Portatolets, portalets, strewn again on the Capitol grounds. It's a disgrace, particularly for visitors and dignitaries coming to Jackson to do the state's business. I don't know. I haven't been down there, haven't seen. Take your word for it. I'm assuming that you've actually seen that. Also, this uh, on the ceasefire text line from this individual, can't drink, can't cook, can't flush. Is there any wonder the frustrations and crime rate escalates in Jackson? A cascading failure of epic proportions, yet the state won't step in and place the city into receivership. These residents desperately need help. Heck, I don't know what the state could do if they stepped in here. I mean, then I think you'd get pushback from other residents within the state, outside of the city of Jackson, who essentially are taking on the responsibility for the city. I don't think that's the solution. Unless we forget, the residents of Jackson voted a 1% tax increase that was supposed to go to fixing the water infrastructure in 2014. That's right. Voted overwhelmingly for it, like 8 or 9 out of 10. And I believe in the state of Mississippi have to get authorization from the legislature to do so, right? Which is one of the reasons last year when they tried to do the same thing and get another 1% increase, the legislature shot them down. Yeah. Said, you just did this less than a decade ago, and you didn't do anything with it. Yeah. Well, and then I haven't looked at the revenue figures for the city of Jackson, but seems like there's you got a steady exit of businesses who sell stuff within the city limits to produce those sales taxes. There's boarded up, empty, abandoned structures all over the place that once housed restaurants, retailers, etc., that sell goods and services that produce sales taxes. On the ceasefire tax line, mailman Clayton says, can the incoming Republican majority rescind any of this new budget? The short answer is no. Mailman Clayton, sorry I, uh, about that as well. And so just uh, to back up a little bit, the the idea being and the strategy being pushed by uh, Republicans, particularly on the House side now I'm talking about, on the House side, including what uh, who appears to be the next Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, doing most of this speaking, we're encouraging Senate Republicans don't go along with this boondoggle $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. Instead, pass a continuing resolution to simply fund the government until the Republican House is seated next week so that they can, as, uh, as they should, deliberate spending to keep the government going for the rest of the year in accordance with regular orders, something we've talked about here on the program, uh, to negotiate 12 separate spending bills instead of one big giant catch-all omnibus bill. Bottom line is the Republicans in the Senate ignored that request. 18 peeled off, joined the Democrats, passed the omnibus bill. Of course, it goes to the presently Democrat-controlled House of Representatives, it passes. Seems like it was 
225 to 10, something like that, in favor of the bill. And uh, so it's passed. It's now headed to the president. We shared this yesterday. The thing is so gigantic that it will take staffers a week at least to enroll it. has to be enrolled on parchment in accordance with our procedures. And so they did see fit to pass a temporary, another temporary spending bill, a continuing resolution, just to keep the government open while, <laughs> while the drafters are busy putting pencil to paper. Maybe it's a stylus, I don't exactly know, to enroll. It's 4,155 pages, which is insanity unto itself. So unfor- And unfortunately, just to clarify... This $1.7 trillion takes care of the funding of the government, the discretionary portion of government, through the end of fiscal year 2023. So the next time the Republican-controlled House will have a shot at funding the government is for fiscal year 2024. Let's hope they start that process Oh, I don't know, in about uh, June, when they should, and have all that good to go, so that there's not this hurry-up, rush-up, got to get on an airplane and get home, sign here. That's what Schumer and even McConnell were clamoring. Reminds me of something my dad would always tell me. Lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. Correct. Wise words there. Embezzlement is defined as theft or misappropriation of funds placed in one's trust or belonging to one's employer on the ceasefire tax line. Just asking, but why do we never hear this term when it comes to the U.S. Congress? Well, technically speaking, because there's there's no no proof of uh, misappropriation. That's a that's a a very tall, high bar to achieve because... Because they're the appropriator. Yeah. One person's misappropriation is another person's wise investment. There's just no consensus on that. The one thing that does just bug the crap out of me is no discussion through all of this uh, from the Senate side about producing a $1.2 trillion deficit about the crippling inflation that's top of everybody's concern in this country. No uh, no discussion about, you know, we really aren't taking in enough money to pay for all this. None of that ever comes up. I just I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. I, I invite you again, think about how you run your household. Those of you in business, think about how you run your business. You have to do it. Within the constraints of the money you got coming in. It's just simple as that. But that is not the way Washington operates. That never, ever enters into the discussion. And now well, we, in fairness, there's very little discussion to be had, especially on the House side. That's I mean, true. Nancy Pelosi's been Speaker of the House since 2019, and there have been exactly zero floor amendments allowed. That's exactly right. Not a one. <laughs> All of the bills under her leadership have been perfect. They don't need amendments. They just get rammed through. At least in her eyes, in the eyes of 
Democrats and Democrat voters. It's just disgusting. It's not just for post office or a building. A whole lot of that money they send overseas, they get X amount back onto the table to go into their pocket on the ceasefire tax line. There's just no proof of that. I'm not saying you're wrong about that, but that'd be money laundering. That's no proof of that. I mean, if somebody can actually prove that that money ended up in some individual's account after it went overseas... I think there is fairly strong evidence of that on Hunter Biden's laptop, honestly. I mean, that was influence peddling. 10% for the big guy. Yeah, and that's all, of course, ridiculously illegal. <laughs> Ridiculous in that you don't even have to think about it. I mean, that's so over the top in violation of law. If that was my kid and it cost him scholarships, this is David on the ceasefire tax line from the 228 referring to the story we shared about the school in Fairfax County, Virginia, where the principal and teachers essentially colluded to withhold rewards received, uh, awards received by uh, those students who took the national merit tests who were in line for financial possible financial scholarships to schools or admissions to schools, and they just conveniently waited till after the early admission or application date before they let them know, oh, by the way, you did pretty well here. In the name of equity, says if it was my kid and it cost some scholarships, I would be in jail just because I would take some equity out of his ASS. Well, I certainly hope these parents see fit to take legal action because I think they have a strong case here. I don't think this is happening just in Fairfax County. I really do think this is taking hold across this country in these woke schools. Coming back on middays, half an hour left. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Studios, that would be tequila. We need to play the Ventures version of that. You familiar with them? The oh, Ventures? Yeah. yeah. We need to play that. Their version. They could play some guitars now, the Ventures. It was about five in the group or something like that. It was mostly guitarist and a drummer, as I recall. The uh, tequila, good tune by them. Hmm. On the C Spire text line... Oh, by the way, says, everybody in my family can play an instrument except me. He wants to know if I can tickle the ivories. No, I cannot. Talking about buying a new keyboard. Oh, no, my bad. I see. <laughs> no, keyboard for the PC. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty fast on a PC keyboard. Done a little work in my career on that. But no, I cannot read music, nor can I play the piano. Cannot. Can play the drums all totally by ear. Did take some drum lessons, and there is actually drum music, 
but it's not quite the same as standard music. There actually is drum music. Yeah, it, there's there's similarities, but it's yeah, it's not the same. Not the same. It is on a staff, and it does follow the same rhythmic method. But yeah, it's that's right. You're not reading notes on the staff. I believe they're all on the same in the same rectangle. There, I don't even know what you call it on the music chart. Staff. Okay, that's the what lines it's on the page are yeah. called staff. Okay, I, the no, the notes are placed on the staff. Right, they're all on the same level in drum music. By the way, which is how it keeps up with the rhythm with the rest of the music. Hmm. Got you. Well, I remember learning a little bit about that in Catholic grade school. The nuns had one of those really nifty little devices that had, um, like, uh, chalk for chalkboard, like five little pieces of wire you'd insert chalk into. Oh, yeah. And you could make the staff, right? And then they'd put the notes up there. It's amazing how good. I always wondered, do they send all the nuns to, like, writing school? <laughs> all wrote the same, and it was all, gee, that, that cursive writing looks like the stuff that used to be hanging in the classroom. They can write just like that, freehand. I, really, do they send them to nun writing school? <laughs> They're pretty good at that. Uh, okay, Joe from Sumrall says, yeah, okay, got you. Yeah, not no, not for my not for a piano, Joe. It's just a keyboard for my computer at home. Looking for a new one. I like the old style IBM PS2 keyboards. I got used to that patented tactile feel. And there are a couple of companies that still do make those and offer those. Oh yeah, I mean places. mechanical keyboards with the actual mechanical button instead of spring a spring-loaded deal. Yeah. yeah, those are. All the rage for computer gaming because oh, of the tactile feel. I didn't know that. Well, IBM actually did patent that, as I recall, back in the 70s on the Selectric typewriter. The the pre-computers had typewriters, and uh, that keyboard had that springy tactile feel on it. And it's called the IBM Selectric typewriter. And they sold a gazillion of them. Well... They uh, they carried that same feel into the manufacture of the original IBM PC keyboard and continued that. I just got so accustomed to that. And it was the same on their mini computers and mainframes, too, on the terminals that connected those. I just got so used to that, I just don't feel comfortable with the more modern, I guess, mushy keyboards. Flatter keys. Yeah. They're kind of run together. Uh, the IBM Selectric style tactile field keyboard is my preference, but they're on back order right now. Can't get them because there are supply constraints. Mike in Gulfport says, as long as the mayor doesn't want the state to help, let them drink bottled water and find an outhouse. This is a result of keeping on voting for incompetence and hoping lightning would strike some sense into the elected. There have to be people of color in Jackson who are smart enough to figure out how to fix the mess that it is our capital city. The situation has to be embarrassing for them. And while I agree to some extent, Mike, I, I guess I'm just suggesting that I don't think there is any appetite on the part of our legislators to really come too much to the financial aid of the city. I think there are some that would support such legislation, but I think in general they would be outnumbered by those who oppose it. 
I think there's concerns of that. I think they're hearing that from their constituents that live outside of the city that say, don't you go in there and vote for any financial support for the city of Jackson. I think you're kind of hearing the same thing. Yeah. So I think that's where we are. Darren in Jackson says, so the 17-year-old who works the drive through window should make the same as the engineer who designs a suborbital capsule that will take astronauts to Mars. Well, this is just a fundamental question, Darren, is it, the only fair arbiter of value is the market. It's the market. And so when Chuck Schumer goes out and attacks corporations and they're what he, he has deemed as greed because they want to produce a profit – and they and they pay people who work for them what the market dictates. That's how it works. What I've always wondered is where is Joe and his cadre of Democrat leftists who hate capitalism? Why don't you hear them busting the chops of how about Lionel Messi kicking a soccer ball? Made a billion dollars doing that. I'm perfectly cool with that. The market says, yeah, I'm willing to part with my money for him to play soccer. Great. Fantastic. Congratulations. But pretty sure he makes a good bit more than the average person watching, than the people who make the games possible, maintain the field, the concessionaires, go down the list. A whole bunch of people are involved behind the scenes to produce these these giant sporting events. And, of course, artistic productions as well. But yet it's the stars, the talent, the people are paid to see. I'm sorry, they won't pay you, see, they won't pay you a premium to see you dole out popcorn and beer. Which there has been an argument about, speaking of stars in Hollywood. Okay. There's been an ongoing argument since before Christmas about a new term called Nepo Babies. Okay. Where it it seems like it just dawned on some people that a lot of the stars you see coming out of Hollywood got their foot in the door because mom or pop or uncle or granddad already had a large chunk of influence in hollywood of course like it's something new (laughs) exactly (laughs) Uh, by the way you know things ain't too rosy in hollywood the folks are losing their jobs in hollywood that by the way voted for joe biden in droves because inflation is taking its toll on the entertainment industry imagine that so just to put this in perspective and to be perfectly clear joe biden's policies are causing them to lose their jobs. You think they get that? I sure hope so. Because it's the truth. It's just the absolute truth. And the Fed is celebrating. Yeah, people are getting... (laughs) They're they're, uh, being sent to the lines of the unemployed. Yeah, that's what we want. You don't have any money to spend anymore except... With the way the stupid government benefits, the largesse of government works when you're unemployed, you can make just as much. So that's not, I'm not really convinced that the Fed's interest rate hiking action is going to have the impact that they desire. 
gee, let's talk hospital. I'm having a procedure at Memorial Hospital in, uh, would that be in Gulfport, I'm assuming? It's a 228 number. Went to pre-op, and I've had an out-of-pocket of 10000 bucks. Person in the next booth is having a procedure with no out-of-pocket because she was offered a federal assistance plan from the hospital. Why can't I apply a federal assistance plan? Not familiar with that. that. Because what you seem to be describing there, I'd like to know more about it, honestly. I'm not doubting you. Is uh, some sort of case-by-case special payment, special financial assistance for this procedure. Now, I'm not familiar with that. Let me know what you know about that. Certainly familiar with subsidies for uh, health insurance obtained in the exchanges, of course, Medicaid, etc. But I'm not exactly sure what this means, if, if some sort of financial aid specifically for a procedure. Well, according to Benefits.gov, there yeah. are 107 Jesus. different federal assistance programs available in the Magnolia State alone. Now, that does include Medicaid and chips and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. but there's 107. That's nuts that we even have that. Coming back with a final segment here on Midday. Stay with us. The innocence lives away. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios, final segment on middays. We're here tomorrow and Thursday, and then the best of on Friday, back in the studio next Monday, and kicking off a brand-new legislative session a week from today, next Tuesday. Looking forward to that. On the ceasefire text line from Terry in Bogachita, what's your opinion of Roger Wicker? Is for me and many in my area he will never get my vote again. The omnibus bill was terrible. If he wants to vote with the Dems, he should run as one. Well, you know, I, as far as my opinion is concerned, I try to focus on on policy. And I hope you've seen that in listening to the show. Uh, I, I disagree with this vote. I don't think this was uh, a good vote, a vote well cast for the senator. I disagreed with his support of the the CHIPS Act, and his support for the infrastructure bill. He voted against the most fraudulently named legislation in our history, the Inflation Reduction Act. He voted against the American Rescue Plan. So just wanted to clarify the record. So the three bills that he did support, one of a handful of Republicans, I believe 19 if I'm not mistaken, on the infrastructure bill, 17 on the CHIPS Act, and 18 on the omnibus bill. I disagree with those votes. Don't think those were uh, honestly consistent with the views of constituents here in the state of Mississippi and most Republicans uh, in the country. So I'll just leave it at that. I think those were um, not uh, really 
good, positive votes uh, to move the country forward. I remain concerned about reckless spending. I think this just continues it. Uh, Americans have made it very clear that inflation and the cost of everything going up is their paramount concern. Someone asked earlier where I saw, I'm looking forward here, Rhino, where do you think the stock market is going? And, of course, anything I say here is completely speculative and a big old guess. But my personal opinion is that I believe we're in for some rough times in the next six months. I think we're going to see lots of earnings reports come out here in the next few weeks showing uh, a decline, and but more importantly, negative guidance, and that will influence investors. We're going to see more interest rate hikes, hopefully at a slower pace and a slower rate. I think all of that is going to weigh negatively on the markets, but I do believe that we're going to see inflation moderate, tick down a bit. I think investors are going to like that, and so I'm looking for a decent rebound and a bit of a bull bounce and a sustained bull market to kick in in the fourth quarter of 23. That's just my opinion. Uh, based on consuming all sorts of information and other reports, don't want to get into that. Uh, you should consult a professional advisor if it's something that uh, you're looking into. We recommend, of course, our friends at Element Wealth. They uh, handle uh, some of my investments and very pleased with the results that we have received there, I've received there, and, and pretty much don't bother them. You know, I've, I've provided uh, goals and objectives early on, and uh, when I open an account with them, and then they take it from there. And of course, you guys have heard Jeremy Nelson come on the program. He's he uh, I think does excellent work along those lines. So that that's where I see it going. But it's the market. There are buyers, there are sellers. That's what makes it work. And anything is possible. And, of course, there are geopolitical events that could affect as well. Who knows what's going to happen with Russia and Ukraine. Anything could could uh, evolve, surface on any day that could send markets in one direction or another. Apple, I happen to have been accumulating Apple for a long time, and it is down today, and it is being plagued with a couple of things. One is still have concerns about supply chain problems and manufacture of iPhones and shortages there. It's being reported, but something we touched on at the top of the program, which is that they're being facing a class action lawsuit alleging racial bias in the Apple Watch's blood uh, oximeter. Oximeter? Is that how you say it, Rhino? Oximeter. Oximeter. I said it right the first time. Okay, that's the way it's spelled. Uh, now, somebody earlier on the program gave us kind of a technical explanation that, of that and said this is horse hockey. I don't know who the person is that texted us that, but based on their explanation, certainly looked legitimate to me that it came from somebody that is more familiar with this than I am. But the lawsuit alleges that during the pandemic, researchers, quote, confirmed the clinical significance of racial bias of pulse pulse oximetry using patient's records as compared to the watch and its measurement of it. So it didn't consider skin tone is what they're saying. 
Unfreaking believable. Just is. So that's weighing on the stock today as well as supply chain challenges. We're out of time here today, but we're back in the Element Well Studios tomorrow. Until then, thanks for joining us. Stay safe and God bless everyone. This show was previously recorded. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.